This is a crowd podcast. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for listening to Captains. I wanted to do something a little bit different for the bank holiday. You may have heard me talk about the huddle throughout the series, and I thought it was a good opportunity to share some of those conversations with you. These are bonus episodes of Captains, where each week, me and Tom Fordyce chat about a different aspect of leadership. You might know Tom from The Joe Marler Show and The Garrett Thomas Cycling Club. They're relaxed and informal, and I found it really useful talking about my playing days and how those experiences of Captain Wales and the Lions have helped me in my life away from rugby. They're bite-sized episodes with takeaways that we can all use in our lives, so if you've not checked them out, you can do so by subscribing to Crowdsports Plus on Apple. There's only one place to start, really, and that is talking about how to create your own captain's compass. This is a question I pose to all of our guests, so I thought it was fair to explain a little bit more about my own compass, how it came about, and how it has helped me, both as a player and in my life today. I hope you enjoy. This is The Huddle. Easy choice for me today, Sam. It's something that you refer to quite a lot on the podcast, and that is the captain's compass. So, first of all, just explain briefly what this is. So when I was 22 and a young captain, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was very fortunate I had a mental skills coach, sports psychologist, however you want to word it. And he actually came to me with the idea. He said, right then, Sam, I think we need to have what I call leadership compass, captain's compass, whatever you want to call it. But it's a compass and it needs to be the four traits that you want to demonstrate daily that you think will make you the best possible captain. So three of them are easy for me. By pure coincidence, they all begin with P. So they're like my four P's. So the first one is just be positive. I'm naturally a very positive guy, um, you know, rather than being a sapper. And so it's kind of positive whether you're in the adversity of a game or whether you're just day-to-day in training. I'm just naturally a positive guy, you know. I always think I'm going to win and that's just what I'm like. So that was easy. The second one would be professional. I always prided myself on being the best pro, whether it's dress code, being on time, the way you are at press conferences as a role model, making sure you're diligent with your nutrition, your sleep, your training, your extras, all these things. I was always wanting to be an excellent professional. So that was a piece of cake. The third one, which is where uh, Andy McCann, his name is, he helped me out, was people. Naturally, I'm very introverted. I would have, as a young player, I'd go into training. I didn't obviously acknowledge people and speak to people, but in a team meeting, I would never speak up, never want to contribute, never want to lead a, a conversation or a meeting. Do my role, go away. I was very introverted. If there was guys 10, 12 years my senior, I probably wouldn't have engaged with them too much. You know, I probably felt they were too distant for me. So I kept my head down. But being a captain, I had to. I had to engage with members of staff, older players, younger players, because I need to be approachable for everyone. If somebody's got an issue on or off the field, I need to know about it as a captain because I'm that link between player and coach. So I had to develop relationships with people. And that might just be if we sat down at lunchtime, maybe just sitting amongst a group of guys that I don't normally sit next to, which you just, you know, innocently just sit down next to them, don't have to host a conversation, but just eavesdrop, maybe just chip in a little bit. You just gradually get to know the group better. And this is something you do over time, you know. So people, that was the third one. And the fourth one, which is the most important, was performance. And again, Andy McCann, I heard him speaking, and he was in front of a room of like 200 like CEOs, NDs, these type of guys, high-level sort of business operators. And he said, if it wasn't for your job title on your door would people follow you and would they know what you do? And meaning, you know, there's a lot of people who can get given a title and they don't walk the walk, you know, but you want to go into an environment, see someone and go, he's impressive, I like the way he is. Because when you're a leader, captain, leader, business leader, people watch you, they look at you, they see how you are day to day, how you act, how you perform. 
So ultimately, you have to lead with your performance. And if you're pl- in rugby sense, if you're being positive, professional, you're a good guy, and you're leading on the pitch and you play well every week, well, that's ultimately how you lead. So they were my four Ps. And I put this on my phone, I had it on a piece of paper, my sort of iPad tablet, so I could just refer to it. Now it's water with ducks back. And I apply this in life after rugby. But at the time... I needed it needed some reinforcement in the early months, but now it's just something I just live by. Okay, this is really good. So let's help people who are listening to this. Let's help them navigate and choose their own compass because there'll be people listening to this who in, in leadership roles. There'll be people listening to this who just want to run their own lives a little bit better. So how would they go about choosing their four points? Good question, actually. And, and what's been interesting in the podcast as well is there's been lots of different points, all very valid. So I think that's the important thing. One thing which comes across a lot is about being authentic. So you can't just take my compass, for example, and apply it to yourself because that's not authentic. So I think when people sit down, probably think about, right, what are my strengths? Because I think the one thing people do is they focus a lot on weaknesses and developing their weaknesses. But when I'm asked for advice on whether it's a a player or even if it's a niche that you might have in, in a business sector... Whatever you're good at, you need to make sure you stay the best at that. You know, you can't just neglect what you're good at and just focus on all the weaknesses. So what are you really good at? And make sure you're always really good at that. So prioritize that. And then what are the things that need lifting up? You know, when you look back and you can get that feedback from other people. It's it's pretty brutal way, but um, I've done it since. In rugby, it's very easy. You get that feedback and you don't take it personal. When a coach says, right, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. That's just normal. You don't take it personal. It's a lot more personal when you do it in a business sense. And I'll sit down with uh, you know, a couple of people who I do work with now and we say, right, we're all going to discuss what we're good at and what we're not good at from their perspective. Ooh. And it's a really tricky one. Yeah. But, but when it's a good, honest, open conversation and you're saying it in the interest of the other person, look, I think you could be... You're good at it, but I think you could be even better at doing this. Then you go, great, they, they want to help you. So I think it's good to... You might figure it out on your own. I needed Andy McCann in this situation to tell me, look, you're a quiet guy. You need to, if you're going to be a captain, you need to develop this aspect of your personality. It might not be natural and it probably won't feel natural for a while, if maybe ever, but it's something that is required. And sometimes you need a little nudge at your comfort zone and it might take someone to do that for you. Okay. And then when we think about using it on a practical basis, you say you had it on your phone. Mm. Is it something that you refer to every time you have a dilemma or every time you make any sort of decision? I had it on my phone. It wasn't like my lock screen, for example, so it was there all the time. But it would have just been saved on my camera roll. And to be honest, I actually, because three of them come very naturally to me, I I actually picked it up very quick. I didn't really need that reinforcement too much. But you're right, if there was something going wrong, say the Lions tour, for example, when I went on the Lions tour, again, I sat down with Andy McCann. He comes up a lot, Andy McCann, sorry. I don't mean to name drop him, but he's just been so helpful and he's a good friend to me now. But a lot of it was done in the pre-planning. So he'd say, for example, right, what potential things could go wrong and who are you going to speak to to fix it? So rather than be reactive, you're being proactive. So if a player comes to you and says, look, I think they're overtraining me and I'm tired, who would you speak to? And I'd literally used to write these scenarios down or I'd almost like rehearse, okay, I think I need to speak to the strength and conditioning coach because he manages the training load. If he thinks the training load is fine, then it might be an issue that I speak to the head coach. It might be something that he needs more management. We need to get some more medical information from his club. Maybe he's not used to this load and we've got it wrong. That's a very rugby niche example. But a lot of it is being proactive rather than reactive. But yeah, I had it on my phone. I'd probably just refer to it if I reflected on the day at the end of training. You know, i probably, you have your shower, you do your recovery, might sit down in your room. I'm like, was I, have I demonstrated being professional today? Have I demonstrated being positive? 
have I tried to develop my relationships with people and did I train well, did I perform well? You know, and at the end of the day, if I can answer yes to all of those four, I've done what I believe is necessary to be a good leader and captain within that environment. So that's probably how I'd reflect on that compass. And it takes two minutes, you know, it takes a minute. And there might be times I think, you know what, I was in my shell a little bit today. I didn't really interact with too many people. Tomorrow I might need to make a little bit more effort just to speak to a certain group of players or maybe reach out to a coach or something like that and just be a little bit more proactive in how I'm going to approach this day. So just a little bit of reflection at the end of the day only takes two minutes. But like I say, once you've done that routine for two, three, four weeks, then it just becomes very, very second nature. Are these four points set or can you change them as you develop and you change? Mine have been set, but then I've ended up with a few extra Ps, which I kind of just refer to, because questions get thrown at me, which I can't answer from that compass. It doesn't cover everything. So when people are like, how do you handle loss or difficulty? Then I have another P, I'm like, perspective. You know, and you probably don't have as much perspective when you're a young person. You haven't gone through as much adversity. You haven't dealt with those problems. When you get a bit older, and it might be something outside of rugby, like the loss of a family member, it gives you perspective on things. And just say like a real-life example in the last few days I've had, I'll be walking the dog. It's been hammering with rain lately, you know. <laughs> we had two months of rain. And it's so easy for us all to go, I'm sick of this rain. Uh, it's doing my head. I'm Dog towels are out, house stinks. But I've got a family member who's terminal. And I think, what would he do if he was told he could have another 20, 30 years, but he'd have to walk in the rain? He'd be crying with joy and happiness. And that's because I've lost perspective over how lucky I am in that situation. So I used to think the same whether it was rugby games and you lose. I think of it the same in a trivial situation now, you know. So having that perspective and sometimes when you think your world's caving in, take a breath, take a step back, take yourself out your little bubble and actually realise the predicament some people are actually in this world and you kind of realise more often than not you're still in a very fortunate situation. So yeah, things like perspective, you know, I would often, you know, drag into that as well. We'll get Andy McCann on as a guest in the future. He's pretty much the unsung hero of Captain so far, and he gets a mention from me practically every episode. I'd actually love you to send me your Captain's Compasses too. You can get in touch via email on captains at crowdnetwork.co.uk or by using the hashtag CaptainsPod on social media. Something that comes up on Captains quite a lot is based around speeches, the importance of them and how to prepare when you're delivering one. Personally, I think it's massively overrated part of captaincy in sports. Rarely is it like you see in the movies, big emotive moments where everyone is dialed up to 11. Of course, there are times when someone says something and the hairs on the back of your neck do stand up and get you going, but often it is a lot more low key. Either way, it is still a vital skill for all leaders to have in their locker, whether that's in the dressing room pre-game or in a boardroom in a working environment. Today is um, an interesting one. It's something that can terrify people. It's the sort of thing that some people never want to do, but they often have to do it, and that is preparing for a big speech. Mm. And it's something I hated to start with. Did you? Yeah. I remember Sean Edwards was a coach when I was first coming through. And when I was young, I kind of looked back, but they were obviously kind of drip-feeding little bits of um, ex- exposure to speaking to the group. And he said before one game, we were playing Italy, he said, do you mind just speaking to the lads before we jump on the bus? Just about breakdown and defence. So this is before you are a captain, is it? Yeah, I was about 21. I remember thinking, whoa, this is way out of my comfort zone. So I didn't realise behind closed doors, the coaches are probably like succession planning on who could be the next group of leaders for this team. And there was, we were in a transition stage at that point, group of mid-30-year-olds, young 20-year-old lads who are going to have to step into that role. It was really hard, you know. But then, because it was about a topic I was pretty passionate about, then it suddenly becomes quite easy. 
But then that's, you know, if, if somebody's asked to be do a best man speech, no one's kind of passionate about doing that. So we all don't really <laughs> like it. But then I guess the best bit of advice I could give would be if you did a best man speech and you did zero preparation for it, you're going to go into that pretty terrified because <laughs> you've got no prep. Like an exam. If you went to an exam with no preparation, you're going to feel very anxious about it. If you prep for it, you're going to feel a lot less anxious. But then you have got to get that balance right. And in, in a rugby context, because there was times I did over-prepare for a speech. I remember I was playing England. I was in my hotel room, and you had a little notepad next to your mm. bed with a, with a pen and paper. And I wrote down like this brilliant speech in my head at like 10 o'clock the night before, you know. And in your head, it sounds amazing at night when no one's in the room and I'm saying this thing really passionately and emotively. I write it all down this pad and I'm like walking up and down the room the next morning, memorising it. But then when you get to the heat of battle and you get 23 boys in, all like smoke coming out of their ears, ready to play England at Twickenham in that cauldron, bang, it was gone. I, I have no idea what I said, <laughs> but it would have been the worst pre-match speech ever. And that's when I actually realised in that situation, I'm much better just to speak much more from the heart and limit it to three key things so I don't forget. If you think of more than three things, for me personally, I forget. So when I'm on the bus in, you'd get the bus into the stage and I'd probably have a quick reflection thinking, right, what are the two tactical points I think are really important for this week's game? Could be set piece and kicking strategy. And then I might think of one emotive piece. Could be like, we, we lost the last fixture. So it could be a little bit of revenge. We, you always say there's no revenge involved in sport. All revenge is always involved in sport <laughs> when you lose. Could be, so that could be a little bit of an emotive thing. Two tactical, one emotive. Okay, that's what I'm going to talk about. So you, you say those things and you remember it much easier. And it's much more natural then. So I think a little bit of preparation, but not, not over-preparing. Just to allow some room for being natural and authentic as well. It's always worth as well, isn't it? Thinking about who the speech is for. Because it's easy to fall into a trap where you end up making the speech for yourself yeah, rather than exactly. the people you're talking to. I also realised as well, when I wasn't captain, I didn't listen to sometimes a whole lot of what the captain said because I'm in my own little space thinking, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. So sometimes you can think too much, you can over-talk, where sometimes in that moment, players actually need a lot less They don't because they're not listening. So you kind of over-analyse it. So the kind of you pitch it differently depends on where you are. So you're right. Yeah, you've got to kind of think who you're talking to, and at what point are you talking to them as well. What about the balance between eye contact and the people you're making eye contact with? And sometimes if you're making a slightly longer speech, maybe it's a more formal setting where you need to refer to notes. How did you handle that? Yeah, pre-match there would have been quite a lot of eye contact. Not in like a weird sense, but like, but guys are giving it to you. So if guys are giving it to you, they need to know you're engaged and you're there for each other. And it's quite a very intense but strong situation to be in. But then when you're, like, then there'll be time where I'm presenting as a player or as a coach and it's analytical feedback and you've got, you know, screens and stuff. And that's a, a, a very different, you know, it's very different. And I remember doing one meeting and it was 12 minutes and I sat down next to a player who I knew quite well after I finished presenting. And I remember he looked at me and went, that was too long. And I sort of was like, in my head, I thought, yeah, oh, shit, he's right. It was too long. And I sat chatting to the analyst after, the video analyst, who's very experienced, but on the last four Lions tours, he went, that was too long. And he said, when you do a meeting, you need two, three maximum take-homes for the boys. And it is, you sit down and meet for 25 minutes, and we say, we've got to do this, 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 and this. When you leave that meeting, and somebody said to you 10 minutes later, give me three three takeaways, quick. Then you go, uh, oh, it was, um, you don't really have that take-home message. So you need two, maybe three strong take-home measures that the boys go, 
I know that's what Sam wants me this week, you know. So it's kind of like the rule of three, you know. So that's kind of how I used to perceive it then in that environment. And sometimes I'd have three, four minutes. So Sam, you've got four minutes to present. I, I've done five hours of analysis, six hours of watching match footage of the opposition. I've got to sum them up in my area in two, three minutes, you know. It's quite a hard thing to do, but it's a skill which set me up great for TV then. Because they're like, Sam, we've got a one-minute analysis piece. I'm like, yeah, great, no problem. You know, I can do it. So there's some transferable skills. But you can. You only need to tell them it once. And if you only tell them two things once, it doesn't, shouldn't take too long. But then when they leave that meeting, it is crystal clear what you want from them. Let's talk about delivery, because this can scare people. They feel, sometimes you can feel that you have to change the way that you speak, that you have to slow down deliberately because all of us speed up when we're doing public speaking. What were your little tricks and tips around there? You have to try and be yourself. Like, like you know, authentic word comes up a lot. You have to try and be yourself because if you're not, and we, we've all done it, you see straight through somebody not being natural. You're better off being authentic and not effective than false and not effective, you know? So I think you have to stay, you have to stay authentic. And I think also people panic about the pause thing because they want to get it done. That two-second pause is not awkward. What I just did. But people feel that's so awkward when there's 20 people watching them. So I think don't worry about taking a breath. It's okay to have a notepad as well, so you can just go down, make sure you don't forget anything. And you'll be much more confident in your delivery. If somebody wants to try and remember everything off the top of their head so it looks impressive, don't worry about it. No, like, these are my three points. There's no problem in that, you know, so it's fine. So I think being authentic, you know, being prepared. And if you're speaking about something which you're genuinely passionate about, that's going to come across. I was very passionate about contact area breakdown. I loved presenting on it, so that was fine. So if you're, I don't know, you're head of marketing or, you know, you're social media, where well, you're talking about and you want to deliver on it, look, this is where we've been really good. This is really good and these are the areas we need to, we need to develop. If you're speaking about something that you're, that you're in charge of, you're passionate about, that natural enthusiasm should come across anywhere, I think. I do look back and cringe about some of those big speeches, but it's something you think will define you as a leader. In reality, it isn't at all. It's all about being honest and authentic rather than being perfect. Welcome back to Captains with me, Sam Warburton. This week, I'm sharing some of my favourite conversations from The Huddle. To hear the episodes in full, subscribe to CrowdSports Plus on Apple. This next chat is really important. It's something everyone goes through, no matter what their line of work, dealing with criticism. Sam, we're going to talk about criticism. And I think we should maybe split this into two separate sections. We'll talk about what we might call external criticism, which is something you would have experienced as a professional sports person, maybe from the media, maybe from on social media when you get feedback from people. And then that sort of internal criticism from within the group. So let's do the first one. First of all, how were you with that? Did you become quite thick-skinned? Did you, do you find that you were sensitive at the start? No one's good at it, I think, when you get criticised on social media. It's not nice. We all seek positive feedback. And you say, like, oh, yeah, don't read the press, or, you know, I, oh, it doesn't bother me. Like, well, I used to take social media really personal when I was young. I, ha I hated it. But I, but weirdly, I go on the bus, I'm not looking at it, not looking at my app mentions, and then an hour later, like a moth to a flame, you just get pulled towards it, like, oh, just have a little look, you know? Why do you think that is? It's weird, because you'll seek... You might get nine compliments and the one bad one you remember and you want to bite on. And I think that when it hurts is when 
if someone said to me, uh, I, I don't mean this to sound arrogant now, but when I was a player, someone said, Sam Warburton's not explosive. I go, well, that wouldn't bother me because I know I'm explosive, like point blank. So that, that's rubbish. But if they say something which is an insecurity of yours and you're thinking it, and they might, they might be saying it, it might be from a completely... Like they have no right to say it. They they might actually be wrong. They don't know. They don't want any education. Just the of the yeah. yeah, they got no insights around the game of rugby. But they've said something which, by coincidence, you might be insecure about yourself, and it reaffirms a, a, a negative thought you have. That's when you think, oh, no, maybe everyone's thinking that, and then it sort of snowballs. But then what I, I remember saying to someone once who was really struggling with social media, I, and I've quickly realised this because you see this on the street. I said, if if I said that to you, you'd probably take it personal because you know I know the game and you think that all your other peers are thinking that. But I said, you've got to think of who is saying this. And let's be honest, like people who are doing this, like these people who are hiding behind fake images on Instagram. I said, if that person, you walk past them on the street and they said, um, oh, Tom, you were awful on Saturday. Your passing ability is terrible. And they were still dressed in their pyjamas at two in the afternoon, <laughs> unshaven, oh, holding a bag of chips with a fag hanging out of his mouth. You'd, you'd burst out laughing. It would go over your head like it was nothing because you go, what does he know about rugby? He's just, just an idiot just telling me rubbish. But on Twitter or social media, you can't personify who said that. And they do reflect an absolute minority of people. And kind of realised this when I retired because I thought a lot of people hated me. You just do when you play. Like You, you, have, you do accept that you can't please everyone. And you have to accept that in sport, no matter how good you are. You can please some of the people, but you can't please all the people. But when I retired, the amount of messages that come through my Twitter feed, I was actually in tears. I was just by coincidence going away to a friend's wedding. I was in Heathrow Airport, and I was holding back the tears. I couldn't believe how nice these messages were, and how many people actually thought highly of me. Which I, cause, But these people don't think to say these things when things are going well. A lot of people who think highly of you don't take the time to say it, because... You know, they just they don't feel they need to, but the people who don't like you are the angry, bitter minority who do it. So when it was bothering me, and this sounds a little bit arrogant, but my agent sent me a text once, and it was a picture of uh, like, a, like a big lion. And obviously the lion means a lot to me being a British lion. And he just said, lions don't worry about the opinions of sheep. And he just sent <laughs> me that. And I was like, no, he's right. Why am I worrying about this guy's comment or lady's comment? On, what do they know? They, they don't know, have a clue I'm putting myself through. So, yeah, it sounds a little bit arrogant, but he just sent me that and I thought, no, he's right. If I was telling you about having to do your job, be like, <laughs> you don't know, but you can't personify it. So once I had that perspective, it, it changed things. What about in the case that you've just described where someone throws the dart at the dartboard and they happen to hit your personal triple 20 when you think, oh, they're right. How do you deal with that? It happened like this. We were sat down and we were about to have a cryotherapy treatment, which is when you go into those big fridges, minus 140. I was sat down, minding my own business, had my gloves on, had my mask on. I was in the queue with the Welsh boys to go in for cryotherapy. And there's a senior player uh, who I highly respect, Gethin Jenkins. And he didn't, he didn't hold back bullets. You know, if he wanted to say something, he'd say, but I, I loved that about him. And we just sat down, minding our own business like this. And I was a young captain at the time. And I, I've mentioned before, I wasn't too vocal. And nothing might have been spoken for about 20 seconds. You're sort of there, you just finish your session, tired, waiting for to be called in for cryo. He didn't even make eye contact with me. And he just went, you need to talk more. Didn't even say, <laughs> oh, Sam, by the way. I went, sorry, uh, what's that, Geth? He just went, you need to talk more. Boys need to hear you more. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you're too quiet. As a captain, you need to 
need to speak a bit more. This would have been my first year or two, perhaps. I didn't take that personal because I was like, but he's right. Like, if he said to me, like, you need to make more tackles, we need to make more turnovers, I'd be like, no, I top those charts. So I know that's not legitimate. But it's actually been able to realise, no, no, you're right. He might have told me a bit blunt. And I was like, okay, I'll make a conscious effort at the end of meetings just to maybe prep something or just so the lads can hear me. Because it doesn't mean I have to like, I, I think you could overtalk, certainly overtalk. And I've always gone down the mantra of less is more. But I can't go four days without speaking in a team meeting to set the scene. I, sh I should do that. I might be uncomfortable doing it, but I should do that. I actually value that input. And when he had his 100th cap, I remember our coach said, I know we, we take the mick out of Gethin for being a little bit grumpy, but he only does it. And he hit the nail on the head. He said he only does it because he's desperate for us all to win and he wants to succeed. That's the only reason he's doing it. And you realise that, that is, he's right, you know? So if someone's coming at it from the right viewpoint that they just want to make you and the team better and make you better as a person, I actually really appreciate that honesty. And rather than people dance around it, I'd much rather somebody tell me that than hear a group of 10 players bitching, saying, I think Sam's too quiet as captain, no one tell me. I'd rather someone just tell me straight and I'll, I'll resolve it, you know. So I actually admired his honesty and I knew it was a work on and you kind of have to be big enough to, to realise, yep, yeah, no, fair enough, that's a weakness of mine, I'll work on it. It can be quite uncomfortable being criticised, particularly if it is someone whose opinion that you rate and respect. So in that case of internal criticism, do you think it's ever worth just taking a step back and thinking about the perspective that person is coming from, why they have chosen to make this particular comment and what has made them say it at this point. Yeah, you take it personal. There was a journalist who really didn't like me. Wasn't yourself, Tom. It was I. <laughs> you were, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just <laughs> trying to work out who criticised. There was somebody who criticised me quite a lot. And I see him now, and I took it way too personal. I talk quite philosophical about things. But in this situation, I took it really personal. I thought, I've said the thing, I'm not doing that if he's there. Um, and I sort of let that go for maybe five or six years. I let this continue. Wouldn't do anything where he might be or do anything. I don't want him to know it. And since, I'm like, I've been a hypocrite because if somebody asks me for my Lions captain and I say, I think, which I did say, for example, I said, oh, I think it'll be Maratoji. Someone like Owen Farrell or Alan Wynne Jones or Johnny Sexton might hear that and think, flip it, you don't think, and they take it personal. But then I think from my side of things, like, oh, no, no, they'd be phenomenal candidates. But I just think for whatever reason, injury, form, the coaches, the player group, that I think it could be him. I'm not saying they should be bad, but then I can completely understand how those players would think, oh, you don't think I'm going to be captain? And I heard that, you know, when there was Lions tours and people weren't predicting me to be captain or weren't think I should be captain. I would take that massively out of context and think that they didn't. They thought I was a, a rubbish captain. But now I'm on that other side of the fence. Oh, no, they... I probably might have been in their top four or five. You've got to realise that for a Lions team, there's realistically 10 guys who can captain that side, you know? So it's just by naming one, is isn't the personal attack. There's lots of guys who can do it. And But I probably didn't have that perspective until I finished playing. I actually don't hold that grudge anymore with this certain journalist. And I see him now and I speak to him. He's a really nice guy. But I paint him in this picture because I took that bit too personally. He didn't have me as his Lions captain. I was like, why? Why am I not his captain? But now I've been asked that question. I kind of... And I had to feel I had to come out on Twitter and defend myself then. I was like, oh, all these players could be good as... I thought, right, I'm not making that mistake again. So I guess until you're on the other side of the fence, you don't see it. And as a player, I held this grudge for five, six years, not going wow. away. So I wish I'd like to be able to explain to players, now, listen, if you hear this, 
they're not saying you're not good enough. It's just, that's just that, at that moment in time, what's come to their head. You know, there's loads of guys who can do it, but yeah, not taking those things personally is something that I learned not to do now and just, you know, things can get taken out of context. Here's one that I think might be useful for people listening who may have someone within their work environment or their life who is a constant criticizer. One of those people who just likes to pile in. What advice <laughs> would you have for them in that situation? Prove them wrong. I prove them wrong. Like I loved you know there's like people have reasons for motivation. And there's somebody once I heard say, like, oh yeah, proving people wrong shouldn't be a source for motivation. Motivation can come from all sorts of things. Take it where you will, yeah. Yeah, the, whatever gets you going. I love proving people. There's nothing sweeter than playing against a player who somebody thought was better. You go there, you do a job, you don't even need to say anything. You just walk out, you're sort of like a Cheshire cat and you just know you've done it. If someone criticises you, like, don't, don't, don't stoop to it. I mean, if they're trying to help you, it's different. Like I mentioned, the getting situation, they're trying to help me. If someone's just criticising to criticise, just do your talking with your actions, please. And then if you want, let them know. Like when you've done that performance or you've done something well, let them know and let them know they're wrong. But I just loved proving people wrong and telling me I can't do something was, I found my best source of motivation. And, and I actually absolutely loved that. And I'd be thinking of that playing games. I'd think of the times people said, he's better than me or he can do this, he can do that. And I was like a, I was climbing the walls in the dressing room to go out and <laughs> prove them wrong, you know. So I, I loved trying to prove people wrong. Just prove them wrong and do your talking with your actions, yeah. I loved proving people wrong. I found it great motivation. We've covered a lot of ground on The Huddle, talking about how to cope with change, how to communicate effectively, how to deliver feedback, how to listen, all great tools for leadership. We'll finish this week by talking about how to delegate. In rugby, we'd have various committee, fines, social, food, entertainment. It was a great way of getting everyone involved. I learned over time that there is a skill to delegation and when done properly, it can be really effective in developing a great team culture. It's quite liberating, isn't it, delegating, once you start doing it? When you get given a captaincy leadership role, you probably feel like you need to do everything. But I think it's actually a sign of strength of realising, actually, I don't know everything and I need help on this. And there's plenty of times where you go up to someone and go, look, I, I'm not very good at this. Can you do that? Can you do it for me? And people go, very rare. never would it happen. They go, no. They go, oh, yeah, absolutely. Whatever you want, I'll, I'll do that. Great. Can you do this for me, please? Because you're really good at it. It's quite empowering for them. And like I said, you still need to be able to free time the focus on yourself. So actually delegating and, let, and developing leadership, other leadership within the group. You know, seeing a young player, you know what? He's a future leader. Let's give him responsibility of this and he can grow into that role. And a good example, a funny example, would be Dan Bigger when he was young. When you come in, you get chucked on laundry committees. It's the worst one. <laughs> You've got to coordinate where all the boys' smelly netting bags go. He was so good at it, he's still on laundry now, 10 Is years he? later. <laughs> he took it so seriously. Oh, tremendous. He was head of, head of laundry and he does not drop that title. He's still <laughs> head of laundry and he runs with it. So yeah, you give people a bit of responsibility and sometimes they thrive in that. They love it. You know, Don't get me wrong, Dan's leadership skills are way beyond just being head of laundry. He's a, a key leader amongst the group. But there's a funny example, if you try and drip feed it to a youngster and they run with it, great, I'll do that to the best of my ability. So yeah, it's quite, quite an empowering thing for the group as well. Maybe this isn't so so true of the laundry example, but delegation also needs you to park your own ego as a yeah, leader, I guess. Time. The one thing which has been really refreshing, actually, speaking to a lot of the guests on the podcast, is how so many of us struggle with imposter syndrome. Still to this day, get embarrassed talking about themselves in, in a really big light. They always talk about other heroes, other icons. 
it's one of the sort of key denominators in leadership is actually the humility that these people all display. And they, they're very self-aware and realise I'm not the single best guy at everything here and I need other people to help me around here. But then that they, the amount of respect people actually get from being like that naturally. I think some people come in, they try and rule with an iron fist. It doesn't really work. I don't think it, and I've seen it with coaches. I've seen it with captains and you don't get the buy-in. You, you don't get the buy-in and all these people are extremely, extremely humble people, which is nice, nice to hear. Let's talk about some of the language around delegation. When you're approaching someone and you'd like to do, you'd like them to do a task for you, sometimes the little nuances are quite important, aren't they? If you say to someone, I need you to do this, that carries a certain amount of coercion and pressure. If you soften it up a little bit and say, I'd really like you to do something, it has an altogether different feeling. Yeah, there was um, there was a player who, really quiet, and I said, I think you should be tour guide, <laughs> but he didn't like speaking. And um, he was like, oh, come on, I, I don't want to be tour guide. But what it was, he had such a huge amount of respect in the group. Amazing player, great amount of respect, but he's very quiet. But I thought, but players want to hear from you. They like, they, they respect you massively. And he's like, I don't want to do it. I was like, just do it for one week. And after a week, if you still don't want to do it, then I'll, I'll switch you off. You know, we'll take you off. He ended up, he stayed on there. He did it. It wasn't that bad. Got a few laughs. Boys are then, like, when you finish doing your tour guide bit on the bus, you're walking out the bus, boys are tapping. You're like, oh, it's not actually too bad, this, you know? So I think just trying to, like, persuade them, like, you'd be good at it. Like, boys want to hear from you. Like, you know, you're really senior member of this group. Like, you're really valuable. Like, you know, your, your voice will be listened to. And, and again, that person didn't want to do it because he's probably really down-to-earth kind of guy, really quiet, wanted to mind his own business. But no, no, the group will benefit from you standing up and seeing your presence, you know. It just gives you a feel-good factor, you know. So did it and he was quite good at it. But yeah, when you say, yeah, you need someone, they kind of feel a responsibility to, okay, this is, the team needs this, you know. And this is, I'm, I'm all sacrificing little things here. Like, I didn't actually like being captain, but there's certain things you feel you have to do because you, it's, it serves the team, you know. So I think, you know, a lot of people, when they get to that level, they realise that, yes, you're very important as an individual, but no one's bigger than the team. And on this example, which is the Lions tour, that's the one great thing that coaches say is they're like, you know, no one's bigger than the team. No one ever will be, no one ever has been. And you pick people who are like that, you know. You pick good players, but you pick good people at the same time. And they, they all realise the great cause. It's something I wondered when you were talking about um, committees and also you've talked in the past about the other leaders within either the Welsh team or the British and Irish Lions team, sometimes there can be four or five people who could be the leader in a group. And when you are pulled out as the leader, there may be some resistance, there may be some others in that group who would have liked that role. When you're delegating to them, how do you navigate your way around that? I felt that happened when I was young. So when I was 22, I wasn't the best guy to be captain. Of course I wasn't. There's probably five, six, seven guys who could have done a better job than me. And I, I felt that a little bit. So I thought, right, I need to get them, I need to get get buy-in because they're probably thinking so-and-so, so-and-so should be captain, not this 22-year-old who's got 10, 15 caps, you know? So I probably worried about that quite a bit. But then I found just having like a conversation and being like, look, I'm, I'm actually quite uncomfortable with this. For example, speaking pre-match. I didn't like speaking pre-match when I was young. So there'd be two or three players I'd go up to and I'd say like, do you, do you want anything pre-match? Because, you know, I'd, I'd like you to. 
And sometimes they go, no, I'm fine. Other times they go, yeah, great, thanks, you know. And yeah, of course, there were some stiff times where like there was players who would have wanted the captaincy and I had it. I didn't want it. I was like, you can flip and have it. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. want it, you know. And there was friction there. But there was, but you just then, I don't know whether it just tries like, try to make it sound too simple. You just had to park it. Because you can't let it get in the way of, of performance. And it certainly happened. There was people who wanted the role that I had. I, and I knew it probably put me as like maybe unliked within some people. But you do have those dynamics at a pro level. You know, there's, you can't please everyone. You can't. And there's people who might think somebody else would be better as captain than you. But I just had to get on with the job. You had to keep it professional. It wasn't the most enjoyable at times. Um, we just had to keep it professional and just do and just do the role. And if they weren't going to jump on the train and, and support, then the coach would eventually find that out and they have the penultimate call. And if someone's that poisonous to a group, they'll get detracted from the group. And that explains why some people haven't made Lions tours, for example, haven't made national squads, who people think might because they're not good for the environment and they wouldn't take that, they wouldn't take that situation, for example, very well. So I was fortunate, and it begins at the start really when you select a team or a group that you have to pick good people as well as good players and it makes the rest of the job so much easier because those examples there are are way fewer and far between. I hope you enjoyed this taster of The Huddle. If you want to get involved, you can do so by subscribing to Crowdsports Plus on Apple. As well as The Huddle, you will get ad-free episodes of Captains and other brilliant Crowdsports podcasts like Beef's Golf Club, George Grove's Boxing Club and the Garrett Thomas Cycling Club. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.